Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that we have new episodes of The Plays of Thing on All's Well That Ends Well, and next month's intensive is on Layered Reading with Andrea Lipinski. Today we have the first of what I hope will be an ongoing series of interviews with our friends and co-laborers in education, particularly in higher education. I'm joined today by Dr. Matthew Smith, president of Hildegard College. Welcome, Matthew. It's good to be with you, Brandon. Some of our audience might not be familiar with you or Hildegard. Y'all are a relatively uh, new college there in Southern California. Uh, tell me about your role at Hildegard and what brought you there. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm the founding president of Hildegard College. Hildegard College, we're in Orange County, California, in, in Costa Mesa, which is about four miles from the Pacific Ocean. We're a new alternative Christian liberal arts college that offers a single degree. The degree is in arts and humanities with a concentration in entrepreneurship. So we're part of the classical education renewal movement, but I think somewhat uniquely are combining the study of the greatest works of philosophy, politics, theology, economics, mathematics, sciences, literature, and so forth with a sort of boot camp in entrepreneurial thinking. And so we care both about uh, the study of great works, uh, the trivium, the quadrivial arts, but are also intentional about launching students into life after college, not just career, but a sense of calling and a sense of ambition and passion for what they're doing. So I was, um, how I got there, you know, I, I taught for about 15 years in conventional universities, both public and private, Christian and secular uh, the last 10 years of which at a major evangelical university. And I, I, you know, over time became convinced that these schools, including major Christian universities, unfortunately, had lost the ability to fulfill their missions because on the one hand, they'd abandoned liberal education, that is the study of the classics and a formative view of, uh, of how learning should happen, and on the other hand, really weren't making good on their promises to prepare students for jobs, to get them jobs, or to uh, prepare them for whatever they're going to do after college. So kind of from both sides, and I thought, you know, what is the, what is the problem? Why are schools ineffectual both in character formation and deep learning, but also in the sort of practical applied knowledge you need to launch into the world? And it was exactly that, the disintegration of faith, learning, and work that, um, that I concluded was, was, was the problem that needed to be solved. And so I became aware of a movement, what I call alternative colleges, although the presidents of these other colleges seem not to like it very much when I use the word alternative. I think it reminds them of alternative rock or something like that. But <laughs> alternative, alternative colleges around the country, I don't know, 15 or so that have started really in the last 20 years, most of whom are um, are Christian colleges and classical in nature. And these are these are purposely small. They often have a single degree. They're radically affordable according, you know, compared to other private universities. And um, as I, you know, about six, seven years ago, began to figure out what it was that made these schools thrive, I thought we could start one of these in Southern California. And so the vision for Hildegard College was born out of that classical renewal movement, but also out of a, a sort of practical consideration of um, what needs to be disrupted, what needs to be reset in higher education. Why do we distrust it so much? What's wrong with it? 
And how can we refocus it on the things that I think matter most to our young people? You mentioned being part of the, the classical renewal. Um, what's, what's your background personally within classical education? Is something you had growing up at all or something came to later? So something I absolutely did not have uh, growing up. My parents, I think, sowed the seeds for it. I um, was encouraged to read and uh, at a young age fell in love with the sciences and mathematics. Uh, but neither my care, my parents uh, graduated from college. My brother and I kind of went off to college on our own trying to figure out how to do it. I went to public high school. Um, but, you know, I was part of a Great Books Honors College in at Biola University, the Great Books Program, Tory, and uh, as an undergraduate. And of course, we read uh, we, we read great texts of m- mostly the humanities in a Great Books Program like that. And it was powerful for me, but it wasn't really until I began attending a church that took beauty seriously in worship that i would say i i experienced classical education kind of stitched together at school and at church and in my community of of fellow thinkers and seekers you know i i i i learned to um to think about beauty that is not just to feel beautiful things but as i heard beautiful choral music or the beautiful words of the um of the liturgy celebrated and um, even the beauty of kind of collective prayer, uh, I began to think of it not as just something I felt, but also thought about. And, uh, and, and I think loving God with all of your mind took on a new shape for me at that time. And so this was my, as I say, kind of stitched together introduction to classical education. Since then, I've uh, I've become completely immersed in it. My children attend a small classical school here where I live in Southern California. I serve on the board of that and love that school. I'm involved with the classical world in many ways, but um, I was certainly not educated classically as a child myself, um, and, and a convert. I'm a convert to it as an adult. Okay, you said you you had a strong love for the math and sciences growing up, but then your background is in literary studies, right? Medieval and, and Renaissance. What, what drew you to that? You know what? Uh, that's a weird, it, 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 you know, it's true. I'm, um, you know, my first book was on a Renaissance performance dramas and Shakespeare. My second book was on Shakespeare and philosophy. Um, I have a book on literature and religious experience. I'm one of the, uh, the editors of the journal Christianity and literature. And so a lot of my, my scholarship is in Renaissance literature, uh, and Shakespeare. And if you, if anybody has met a Shakespeare scholar, and I know that that you all have a Shakespeare-oriented podcast, um, Shakespeare people are distinctive. I mean, they're passionate. They love Shakespeare. They know it. Um, they're theatrical, and they're awesome folks. <laughs> and I just was not that way. Uh, I I remember in college, as I was a math major, and then I switched to English, and I um, I decided I wanted to become a college professor. I had a transformative experience in college. It totally changed the trajectory of my life. And the way that I approached family and community and church and work. And so I thought, I want to be part of that for other young people. Uh, how do I do it? Okay, I need to get a PhD. I guess I'll get it in literature. And then I had I had a uh, I had to submit my applications for graduate school. This is you know, this is decades ago. And um I, I remember thinking, well, I need to choose what I'm gonna study. It can't I can't just say, hey, I wanna, I wanna study college. <laughs> I need to, I needed to choose something. And so I I remember pulling books off the shelf and thinking, oh, I could study 
whatever, Boethius. I like Boethius. Oh, I could study Cervantes. Yeah, Spanish literature. Oh, Flannery O'Connor's great. And I and I was just thinking I could study any of this stuff. And for me, it was kind of a means to an end. And in the end, I chose the Renaissance because it seemed to be a turning point from the classical to the modern way of thinking. And it seemed like a really important epoch to study. But mm. besides that, I really was not especially passionate about it. And of course, I came to fall in love with the work of William Shakespeare and his contemporaries and the poetry of John Milton, metaphysical poets Dunn and Herbert, and then uh, e even back into medieval theology and philosophy and some of the medieval theater that I've written on. Um, so that's my that's my scholarly background. I think of myself as a generalist more, and I've kind of returned to those initial feelings of, well, I don't really care what I'm teaching as long as I'm engaging it authentically with students who are also there asking real, honest questions courageously. Uh, let's go for it. It could be the sciences, it could be mathematics, politics, literature. I don't care. All right. I'll, let's let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, you know, the topic of formation is one that comes up often in classical education circles. Um, we get a lot of mm -hmm. teachers and parents out there asking us about college preparedness. Uh, from your vantage point, what do you see as the most important uh, to formation and preparedness in K through 12 for those students who are interested in continuing their liberal education in college? Yeah. And, you know, in that question are a lot of are a lot of questions, you know, why, yeah. why ought somebody who has a liberal education K through 12 continue to go, go forward with that in, in college, should they go to college, you know, is also a question. What, how are they being formed? Already K through 12 is a big question. I mean, I think that we form, formation is a question that I think a lot about and that we have tried to be particularly intentional about at Hildegard College. Um, because I, it's, it's a word that's bandied around. Sometimes it goes by synonyms, maybe spiritual formation or discipleship, faith integration, whatever we mean, you know, character formation. And yet most of the time in practice, we assume that it just happens by osmosis. If you're around good, virtuous teachers and you're reading works by people who have strong and good ideas uh, and you're in a community that <clears throat> that that cares about um compassion and community behavior and you include you know the uh, aspects of exploration and field trips in your curriculum we just assume that sort of by osmosis students are going to be formed um and i think that we can be more intentional about it and you know i don't know if i have a I don't know if I have a great universal answer to the uh, to the question of whether or, or how uh, in the K through 12 level we can prepare our young people uh, in terms of formation for college. I will say that at the younger ages um, and probably still in the kind of secondary level, we in the classical education where we celebrate, you know, wonder and curiosity, um, exploration, we want students to admire things, we want them to play. and. I think this is fantastic. And the reason I think it's fantastic is because these act not just because these activities mix thought with emotion, which is indeed true and is at the base of what formation is, but because these activities like wonder and admiration and exploration and curiosity, these are activities that are conducive to virtue. And by virtue, I'm referring to intellectual virtue and not just uh, uh, 
striving to do the right thing. So as a student is asking a question uh, about nature or about the ideas presented in a book, can they be exercising virtue as they're doing it? And I would say in the inverse, is it even possible to arrive at the truth if you're not exercising an intellectual virtue? And what do I mean by that? It sounds kind of, I know that sounds kind of vague, but uh, do you take a virtue like courage? I think we can see, especially if you look at the higher education landscape these days, a deficiency of courage across the board as an intellectual virtue. There's a there's a study that came out a couple of years ago about the heterodox uh, heterodox academy that uh, that that found through polling that something like two thirds of college students in the U.S. were unwilling or um, unable to say what they actually think in the college classroom for fear of social or academic repercussions. And so we have, I mean, this could be a circumstantial reason or it could be an actual formational reason, but we lack courage. And I think courage is something that we need um, in order to learn, especially Socratically and through discussion in the classroom. Uh, So this is what I mean. And so I would say, How do we prepare students? I think connecting these characteristics of classical education that are not merely pragmatic, but are thinking, as we like to say, about the whole child, especially by identifying with acts of curiosity and exploration and wonder and play, the particular intellectual virtues that can align with those. Uh, and and in fact, even talking with students about it, these kind of meta conversations that we can have with students are really, really helpful for them. And they can and they can handle it. Even at a young age, students can think and can reflect with teachers on why we're doing things the way that we're doing them. Um, you, you mentioned that you spent some time uh, anyway, well, you spent a lot of years in other other university settings, teaching in other colleges. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I know Hildegard is, is relatively new and, and probably primarily drawing from classical education students, but what differences do you see um, in students coming from a classical background previously as far as formation and preparedness was concerned uh, compared to maybe some of the contemporaries? Yeah, you know, I, I get asked this question a lot, and I'm glad I do because there is a difference, but it's not always the difference people expect. It's not that, you know, in a small class of 20 students, um, that the the classically educated or sometimes kind of homeschool classically educated students stood out for their intelligence or their their reading skills or writing skills, although sometimes they did, it had to do with their um, in, in the, the ordering of their soul as I don't mean to be esoteric when I say that as manifest in um, in their fortitude. And it's it's one of the it's one of the problems of our time that our culture celebrates brokenness and students college students uh they they lack the fortitude uh, on average and the grit to push through challenges um that they need to push through in order to experience the learning and formation and preparation that they need and colleges, instead of, you know, most universities, I would I would venture to say, instead of trying to show students how to move through that, 
that challenge with grit and perseverance and resilience, instead um, congratulate them for uh, for acknowledging that they're broken and they celebrate it and they therefore cha- even change their curriculum to accommodate for it. So practically what I'm talking about is, you know, a student might just disappear for a week or two if something happens in their personal life, something serious or maybe something like not that serious, their, their roommate gets dumped or something like that. And they have to be there for her or him. And, uh, and they would, they would just disappear, but you would still see often a classically educated student show up to class. You could tell there's something up. And of course you want to be there to help that student through it, but they're still there. They've still done the homework and they're still ready to go. And it's a commitment to the common cause. And I think that this is, this is related to formation and especially, uh, what I would call grit, uh, modern term, to describe one of the intellectual virtues that we should be uh, that we should be striving for. And I mean, if you're when I say our culture celebrates brokenness, I mean if you're depressed or confused or lost or hurt in some way, our culture celebrates it, but doesn't offer a way through. Because if they were to offer a way through or past that brokenness, then it would degradate that state of confusion or depression as deficient. Deficient, right? It's something that you need to move through. It's deficient. And if you're to call it deficient, then you're to assume that there's a state of completeness or what we might call purpose or telos to what it means to be a human and to feel and to think. And our culture, of course, does not have this sense of purpose and telos. Hmm. So it's important as classical Christian institutions that we unapologetically point to what that telos is. For us, it's it's a communion with God is practiced through love of God and love of one's neighbor. How does that shape the direction of a school? Well, I think one thing it, it, it calls us to do is be to be really, really intentional about formation. At, at Hildegard College, we actually have a of our four academic units, the four kind of paths that students take concurrently. One of them is called formation. Students work through the formation method, which is a set of practices of reflection and identification, exploration, commitment, accountability, designed to be used in community. And these practices are based on an understanding of human nature as communal rather than individualistic and virtue-oriented rather than uh, industrialized and creative rather than consumeristic. This is essentially a redemptive view of human nature that we again unapologetically point to and we believe that in through this method students use it uh, they learn it they're being habituated to a view of human purpose and promise of the good life founded in grit and founded in these intellectual virtues that are going to get them through and so long answer to your question it's something that i'm quite passionate about it because classically educated students have a higher capacity for challenge and suffering. And that sounds maybe like an unexpected answer, but it is totally relevant to the 18 to 22-year-old experience in our country today, especially in college. Well, that that takes me to my my next part, or uh, follow-up, I think, on that would be, um, you know, primarily when we talk about formation uh, within classical education, we are talking often about K through 12. We're talking about students who are, primarily being taught by their parents or teachers in a setting that's closely, you know, teachers, parents are, are, are heavily involved. Um, how do you see 
the that role the role of colleges in the continuation of that formation as these students are kind of transitioning into into adulthood in many ways mm. Mm. you mean you mean specifically with classically educated folks how ought they to be thinking about college and continuing yeah, or, their formation there? In, a, in an ideal world, everybody had been getting form some good formation growing up. What would, what would be the role at the college level, you know, for that continued formation? Yeah. You know, it's a, it, it is admittedly a complex question because you can talk to, I mean, I can talk to smart people I admire who tell me, you know, I don't think hardly anybody should go to college. And I completely understand why they say that. And other people who are smart who say, I think that, everyone should go to college and it's a public right that they have and that we should forgive their loans and so forth. Um, and I'm going to disagree with both of those people, but college for better or worse, what it has become for our society is a coming of age experience. Um, and that's not to diminish its goods. If a school um, tries to, tries to uh, empty college of the, substantial parts and simply sell a coming of age experience of course um of of, of 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 course that's a problem and that school probably honestly will be successful in the short term but as a coming of age experience uh, i i believe that the formation of students coming especially out of classical education it can be so easily undone the good work that is done in the primary and secondary school levels can so easily be undone in college uh, and it's it's simply a matter of the not necessarily insidious professors out there to undermine the foundation or faith of these young people, although sometimes that happens, but it's more just the culture of these institutions. And so unfortunately, I you know I do agree with the uh, with the first person who says, I think that you know most people ought not to go to college. They might have different reasons for saying this, but I would say, Someone is probably much better off taking advantage of some of the resources that are out there, even in the classical education community or through the church in terms of self-education and learning and community, and then maybe apprenticing and getting a job somewhere. But uh, I mean, that's that's a better option, in my opinion, than going the direction that lots of classical school and even kind of homeschool families tend to go, which is very transactional. OK, we did the good work in high school. Now let's game the system and be resourceful. Can we do community college? Can we apply these dual credits? Can we go to a state school and find a really inexpensive way and kind of doctor uh, doctor our, our, our child's way through college practically? Um, and it might seem inane and it might seem non-effectual and it's just a means to an end, but it's not. There's always a culture at these places um, and... Uh, the, your your best bet, in my opinion, is to go to or look into the alternative college movement. These are colleges specifically designed, not just for classically educated students, but specifically designed with that problem in mind. And the solution being we need a new culture. We can't just take a university that exists and reform its culture. We need to hit the reset button and we need to build something with a new culture. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think uh, when I say it's a coming of age experience and that's the role that college plays, of course, learning and preparation for career and kind of spiritual moral formation, those are important. But you're also making professional connections and lifelong friends and you're learning how to be an adult. You're learning how to stock your refrigerator and find 
figure out how to get Wi-Fi in your apartment and to manage your time and to deal with stress and all of these things too. And I think it just has to be that way. So I know an area of, uh, of kind of importance for you and for, for Hildegard is, is considering, uh, different types of arts, uh, in particular, mm -hmm. the, the liberal and the servile arts. Um, first, could you just from from, you know, from your perspective, your understanding, what's what's the where's the line, the line that's typically taken between those two things? What differentiates the two, the liberal and maybe some of the yeah, audience the, aren't as familiar? Yeah, the liberal arts, the arts of freedom, right? These are the traditional liberal arts that are oriented or, or designed to orient someone towards free activity, classically speaking to be free to engage in political activity, which is not the modern sense of politics, but the science of having life together. Um, a free citizen is once someone that can engage in politics. And then Christianity uh, kind of uh, uh, refurbishes this idea of freedom to include a sense of Christian freedom, freedom of the will, freedom through Christ, um, which is which is tied to holiness. And then, so that's, those are the traditional liberal arts. These are things you study in order to be free and they're thought of as ends in and of themselves. The servile arts, serviles and in service to other things are secondary in purpose. And so, you know, to, to be um, studying the servile arts, I mean, we, we might equate that with something like trade school or going to learn computer coding. There's nothing um, about computer coding itself that is freeing to you that is liberating to your soul so it's called a servile art in service of some other good okay um and i think you know you've done a lot of thinking on on why we've made this distinction historically um how it's been viewed by 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 mm -hmm. uh thinkers within the classical tradition uh, i just wonder if you could give us some feedback on what you're seeing as as or what you found in in the purposes for those distinctions and then how it's been talked about maybe uh, kind of throughout the tradition, obviously covering th several thousands of years in the next 30 seconds. Yeah. Go, ahead, go, go. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I get the question all the time. Why do you combine entrepreneurship with the study of the liberal arts? So you know, the vast majority of our curriculum of the 120 or so units required, I mean, upwards of 90 of those units. So, you know, uh, uh, way up there, three quarters are, um, devoted to the study of great texts, the quadrivium and the trivium, um, and formation. And then we have six courses plus a required internship and a big senior capstone in entrepreneurship. Um, Hildegard College is based on, it is named after Hildegard, who was a polymath, not an expert in one thing, but proficient in many things, St. Hildegard, the 12th century Benedictine abbess. And we think that society needs polymaths. And so we naturally combine what people might call the liberal arts and the ser servile arts and people... Um, you know, I've had emails from even passionate high school students saying, "You are, what are you doing? You're you're contaminating the liberal arts, the arts of freedom, with practical application, and you're buying into a lie of our society." And I am totally sympathetic to the argument of that student because it's very easy to undermine the the depth and power of a liberal education by always. Um, always ending it or kind of completing it in an in application. And one thing that I've learned in college is that in teaching college is that students identify with and place their value in whatever area they're asked to be most creative. Right. And think about this if you're an educator or if you're a homeschool parent or any kind of parent, 
think about how your how your students, especially through the teenage years, come to identify their values and think, okay, well, does that align with what I've taught them or how they've been taught? Or does it align with in their education where they've been asked to be most creative and expressive? And you'll probably find it's the latter. And sometimes they're the same. A good education is one in which where students are asked to be creative uh, is, is, is aligned with the kind of foundation of learning that you're giving them. Um, so the re- the reason I'm bringing this up is, you know, I think that that student complains that we're contaminating the liberal arts with the servile arts, and I'm always put it that way, uh, is is right that um, we ought not to say you you should study grammar and logic and rhetoric and music and and, and mathematics and so forth and these great works of literature, and then tell them, but really, like your capstone project and 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 what you need to be thinking about as you're graduating is what you're going to do for a job. That would be wrong. You know, when, 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 I, when I hear the word servile arts, I think of uh, Marlowe's Tragedy of Dr. Faustus. If anybody has, listening has read this play or seen it, it begins with Faustus's soliloquy. Faustus, who famously sells his soul to the devil for 24 years of power and then is dragged to hell at the end. Spoiler, dragged to hell at the end. Uh, Faustus begins this soliloquy by working through different disciplines that he's mastered law and medicine and ethics and even you know philosophy and even theology and then he specifically uses these terms this is these arts are too servile for me they're in service to other things and what he means by that is that uh, if you study law you're you're simply adjudicating matters of 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 conflict and disagreement you're not actually studying justice even theology he thinks is sort of contradictory and self-serving what he wants is something that's truly free. And for Faustus, unfortunately, it takes the form of power. It doesn't take a truly liberal form that is a, a, a form of free will or autonomy. It takes domination. It becomes the most powerful person in the world for a certain amount of time before it's taken away from him. And I think that play is, is rather prescient of our modern version of freedom that does interpret everything through power dynamics. But what is praxis really? What is the equivalent of liberal arts to what we might call servile arts or practice for practice or application? And I, and I believe that it's the natural consequence of the activity of a free will acting in community in the political realm or the commercial realm or the church or whatever community that may be. Um, and when you, when you think about people like Boethius, for instance, who's one of our, um, one of our kind of uh, main historical figures we look to, um, to establish what we understand liberal education and classical education to be. I mean, he reluctantly got involved as a consul in the, in the political realm. Um, and you can see similar things of Augustine, and you can see similar things of, you know, Aquinas helping out with, um, you know, problems of the Great Schism and things like this. All, all of the people that we look to, I mean, John Milton is a great example in the Protestant tradition. Uh, these are people for whom action and what we might call application were natural to a liberal education, and uh, if you if you give a student a liberal education and then tell them now go do something awesome with it in the world, what you risk is that student going to do something awesome in the world and being asked to create and to apply, but not bridging that for them. And then again, that good work can be undermined because we tend to just human nature to place value into things and through the activities through which we're most creative and asked to ask to be expressive and to build. 
And so we want to purposely bridge this learning with this building in a way that makes sense, does not compromise the the goods of liberal education, but in fact empowers that study of how to build things and create things, as we call it through entrepreneurship, empowers it and kind of infuses it uh, with, with the deep learning and wisdom of the liberal arts tradition. Yeah, I think this has been an interesting uh, area of discussion in the last couple of years, uh, both with with a resurgence uh, of, of talking about uh, folks like Hugh of St. Victor, who has this expansive list mm-hmm. of arts that he breaks into all kinds of categories. Um, and then books like uh, The Common Arts uh, from Christopher Hall that came out a few years ago. Um, he tries to shift the, t- the term a little bit so it's not, uh, doesn't yeah. sound so, so, <laughs> so slave-like. Um, and, and I think it's an important one as we, as we think about, um, you know, the time and space we dedicate to various things in, in, um, both the K through 12 and the, and the, and the, the undergraduate and graduate area, areas of study. Um, probably a lot of it is finding where the, where there's overlap, right? I mean, there, there seems to be, for me, especially in the younger kids, but in the K through 12, a lot of places you can overlap a common arts doing and, but that, that, that's in, um, informed by the liberal arts education that you're, that you're getting, um, whether that's just, yeah. you know, fine craftsmanship on something because it's worth making it good, you know? Um, I, I wanted to give you just a chance, uh, you know, as we kind of wrap up a little bit to, to more specifically, uh, Kind of explain the program there at at, at Hild, uh, Hildegarden, um, uh, and what you're kind of looking toward in the next few years as you have launched and are growing, and just but kind of give our folks, people who are interested maybe in what the program might entail, um, as they're looking forward for their own kids or kids they teach in a school. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Brandon. And you know we are we are an an ambitious school. Uh, designed not just for classically educated folks, but for anybody who wants a a rich classical education in college, in a small learning community, people who voluntarily decide to undergo a rigorous academic journey with us. Um, We are radically affordable. Our tuition is about a quarter of what the average private Christian university is. We're independent of federal financial aid. And so we have autonomy ourselves to make decisions the way that we want to. Um, and um, we 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 are committed to the classroom. So we're not a school where you're going to find big athletic programs and, you know, the, all of the things people like to say, lazy rivers and rock climbing walls and things like that. We're a school where students are devoted to each other. Um, we've been described by in, in, in the press as a kind of mashup between an incubator, business incubator lab and a monastery. And I sort of embrace that in many ways. Um, so we have a single curriculum. Yeah, we're an accredited program through a partnership with the University of St. Catherine. So we're regionally accredited. Courses are transferable, of course. And uh, we we have a single degree that combines the study of the great texts with entrepreneurship. So great texts. We have a program called Quadrivial Arts. Students study uh, geometry and arithmetic in year one, year two, music, music as a science and music in the human soul. Year three, they move to the natural sciences, especially physics, but also chemistry and biology. And then year four, we study moral philosophy and theology. The queen of the sciences is a study of metaphysics. And these are um, objects of knowledge that are only properly known with the mind. And so the journey 
of the four years of our college is very specifically crafted to move students through a formative way of learning. Um, As I discussed before, students will be in formation groups throughout in which they're learning how to make sense of these apparently divergent different aspects of their education, entrepreneurship, formation, science, music, great texts, literature, theology, um, in formation, they'll be kind of synthesizing these ideas together, uh, learning how to live in community. They'll be praying for one another, studying the Bible together. Um, we also, in formation, is where we teach writing, and all writing at Hildegard College is taught one-on-one in a kind of tutorial model. And then lastly, we have the entrepreneurship concentration, which I described earlier, and it culminates in a year-long project that seniors have called the Polymath Project. Again, polymath, somebody, we might think of it as an old-fashioned word for entrepreneur, somebody proficient in many areas of knowledge and practice rather than just one. And the only requirement is students can do whatever they want. They can start a business. They can do a project for an existing business, one of our civic partners who help teach our entrepreneurship courses. They can, it can be a more academically-minded project if they want to. Um, the only requirements are that, A, students convince us that it's a problem worthy of addressing and B that it whatever they say they're going to accomplish in a year can be accomplished within the scope of that year. And so this is sort of students way of um, taking what they've learned and, uh, and using it to kind of bridge their launch into the real world. So this is the Hildegard college program. Our application opened about two weeks ago for our inaugural class that will begin in fall of 2023. So we're accepting applications, www.hildegard.college. Hildegard.college is the website. Uh, Accepting applications right now for the first freshman class to begin next fall. And I would say, you know, if you, um, the ideal student here is the kind of student who's interested and excited by being part of something new and ambitious helping to establish the culture of a new college who's unafraid to speak freely, who wants to learn the the art of civil discourse and read the most important ideas, uh, who wants to have a unified and focused and carefully crafted education um, and to live in beautiful Southern California, of course. So uh, that's Hildegard College for you in a nutshell. All right. And last but not least, uh, give you a shot to give some book recommendations, either your favorites or um, from the tradition or some things maybe for people in particular that are thinking about college and planning for their kids. Okay. Book, book, book recommendations. You know, um, I, I don't, I don't have any go-to books for how to think about college. I'm thinking about books that I would recommend and, I, of course, what I, want, what I want to do is recommend all of the classics. I mean, I think when you read the writings of, 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 of Shakespeare and Aquinas and Augustine and Plato, that is preparing you for the decision about what kind of college to attend, if any college at all, better than anything. I mean, the, to experience what, um, what Socratic dialogue can accomplish and to experience the kind of systematic way that a thinker like Aquinas writes is irreplaceable, but I'm, I'm going to give a couple, um, I'm going to give some fun book reviews, if that's okay. Some book reviews that Sounds good. are some, some book recommendations that, uh, that I've read recently or reread that I, I just love. So one of them is, uh, you know, probably a lot of listeners here have read the fiction of Haruki Murakami. So, uh, has written many books, uh, contemporary 20th century novelist, 
my favorite is called a wild sheep chase. If you're into magical realism, this is a, this is uh, uh, there's, there's depth to these books and they're very realistic until they're not. <laughs> you wonder what is happening and you're forced, you're forced to grapple with something that is totally extraordinary as if it's presented in an ordinary way. And I think that you can see this metaphorical depth of that kind of challenge of the reader. Um, the other is uh, surely familiar, Graham Greene's The Wind and the Willows, uh, nice. my favorite book of all time. Um, I, 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 I actually tend not to really like books or films, for that matter, about animals. In this case, The Wind and the Willows... Uh, 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 kind of centered on this this lost character. I think of him as a symbol of the kind of modern seventeen year old in many ways, <laughs> mole, mole, or maybe or maybe Mister Toad in that way. So lost, um, and and how do you deal with it? And it's actually on the mind. My daughter at her in classical school she goes to was just cast the role of the water rat. Nice. In my opinion, the most noble character in the Wind of the Willows in the play that she's in. And so good luck to her. But those two books, A Wild Sheep Chase by Murakami. And the Wind in the Willows, if you haven't read it, get a beautiful edition from the Folio Society or something like that and sit down with the family and read through it. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Smith, for your time. Uh, and thank all of you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another conversation and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.